This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. A great way to support the library is by visiting the library shop, where you can find thousands of items for book lovers, like library totes, mugs, and magnets, boasting quotes from famous writers. Visit shop.nypl.org and use the code PODCAST for a 10% discount. And remember, every purchase supports the New York Public Library. Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. Art Spiegelman moved readers with Mouse, the renowned graphic novel recounting his father's experience of the Holocaust. Now, Spiegelman has brought to our attention the forgotten Cy Lewin masterpiece, The Parade, a wordless meditation on the cycle of war. He joins NYPL's Paul Holdengraber for a discussion on his work, past and present. If you're curious about some of the images discussed in this episode, visit nypl.org podcast, where you can find a link to a video of the discussion. What a joy to have you here. It's great to be here. Really a joy. So let's start with your set of seven words, the oh. second version. Okay. Let me also just prepare myself to show off this utterly gorgeous book you've, you've made. It's just so, so magnificent. The seven words, the second seven words you have are in some form or fashion... This is an illustration for them. Yeah, it's from a sketchbook. From uh, a se- what is that sketchbook? It's called B&O's. Uh, McSweeney's, after I told them I don't keep sketchbooks, found them. And so they printed them as three books, B-A-N-O's. Uh, a quote from that great masterpiece of cinema, Bucket of Blood, which is about uh, the guy I, who works as a uh, cleaner-upper in a beatnik coffee house, uh, Roger Corman movie. Yeah. And uh, he's upset because the poets and artists get all the girls. Uh, and so he decides that he's going to become an artist. So after work, he goes back to this rooming house and he has this uh, clay that he's, or, or whatever, some, some kind of marble that he's going to cut into. And he's just smashing it going, be a nose, be a nose, be a nose. And then he gets really frustrated and throws the uh, chisel into the wall where it hits a cat that falls into the plaster. Um, so be, this is his... It, that be a nose moment is how I feel most of the time when I'm working. Uh, and then and you've, the you've, next, had, you've had that problem for a long time. Yeah, I but think. I didn't have the yeah. problem he then developed, which is uh, the cat was covered with plaster. He induced a girl to come back to see his sculpture and says, wow, what do you call that? Dead cat. Cool, man. <laughs> <laughs> so I never had the second part, but the first part I, of be a nose and just praying. That but this, is it a good movie? For that. Okay. <laughs> so, your seven words, the second, the first version, mm. I read the second version, is a megalomaniac suffering from an inferiority complex. Mm. <laughs> so, I'd, I'd like you to to unpack that. And, and before, I did unpack it, because yeah. originally it was only five words. I didn't right. need suffering from, but I had to get to seven. What, what, but unpack it further. Tell me a little bit more about Maybe we can take each term, or um, <laughs> if not each term, the, the sentiment you're trying to convey. Well, um, 
Yeah, actually, this is a simplification because I feel more like a, a multi-phrenic than a schizophrenic with only two selves. But uh, I think that um, it has to do with when I was younger, as they were hauling me off into a mental hospital, uh, literally, uh, I just assumed I was God. And although it's true, I found that it wasn't a good idea to brag about it because then nobody would forgive me for the kind of crap we live through, you know, these days. Uh, so I had to develop the inferiority complex just to function in the world. You know, there's a New Yorker cartoon when I when I read your seven words, it reminded me of a New Yorker cartoon where you see, I think the caption is low self-esteem, and you see a man writing in his journal, and he's writing. Dear Journal, I'm sorry to bother you again. <laughs> That's about right. It's, uh, yeah. Um, I, I want us to get a sense of the book before mm. we talk about it, because it, I, I can't quite explain the, the tactile inebriation I feel upon holding this book and just, I mean, it's just magnificent. I'll have trouble putting it back. But I think it's, it is, it's, it's it, like a slinky. It is just extraordinary. So there are two sides to it. Maybe you can say something about each wow. side. We should spread it around the room. I, should, I really should. It, it is just really wonderful. Now, everything, look at this. Look, it is so beautiful. <laughs> While I, I um, put this back together, Maybe you can say something about each side and what you try to do okay. and why, why it is in this form. It'll take me a few minutes. Okay. So it's a you, very, you... very long accordion fold book that grew out of something Sai told me, which was quite impressive. When he was a, a very little kid, a toddler, his parents would both take him to uh, the museums with him when they went. Um, and his mother we're, was... We're... Uh, in Berlin, sorry. They were refugees from Poland, thinking everything would be a lot better in Germany right after World War I. Uh, Sai was born right around Armistice Day in 1918. Um, so he moved as a, a very, very young kid. His father was a really well-known Yiddish writer, which is an oxymoron, but at the time it wasn't. This was more like 1918. Um, and his mother was the granddaughter of the wonder rabbi of Lublin. She was an atheist like her husband and like Sai, although Sai was the most God-fearing atheist I ever met, I must say. Um, and then they would take him to these museums, and he would dance around the museum and chatter to himself, and afterwards they would say, so, did you like it, Sai? And he'd say, oh, yes, it was wonderful. I talked to all the paintings. The problem was that when I'm not here, I wish they could sit closer together so they could talk to each other. And one, wonderful, uh, amazing, wonderful. Yes. He was nine one, years old, or no, he was younger, six well, or seven. Yes, he years. was three years old when three he said that. Three years old when but, he said that. Uh, but when, by the time he was an adult, he was living by that. He was making a lot of triptychs and then longer and longer serial works. And one of the first and most intense of the serial works was the book that's on side A, the parade, and. That one is a parade, and the first time it was published, not in a giant edition, it was one picture per page with a blank on the left. In 1958 or yeah, something 1957, like that. Yeah, 1957, exactly. 57. And then um, when we were going to do a remastered version, because all of the original art existed, plus about 40 other uh, outtakes, so we really literally made a director's cut together, adding the pictures that needed to be back in there. Now that we're looking at them after so many decades, and uh, 
This was literally a way to allow them to be uh, pictures talking to each other, a real parade of images. And then I looked on the back, and the back was blank when we made the dummy, and I went, oh, shit. You see, my father says, you're wasting paper again? Uh, and so I figured, well, the back should actually just have something, so maybe we can put the essay that I wrote about him on the back. And then it got more and more complex until finally it became an entire monograph on the back with uh, a sense of what he made, which he was a very prolific artist working in many different ways, a rather complex man. He wrote an unpublished autobiography. We which I hope will be, I hope I hope will so. be published. If we manage to get side I, I, back in view, I'm well, sure you have. want to do it. Oh, I hope that's true. You yeah. have. Mm -hmm. You you've um, you've given him, and we'll we'll be speaking about that a little bit more. But you've given him art a second life. Yeah, and he seemed to know it actually. Yeah. Uh, so the thing was that um, the back then became very dense on its own, and um, it became literally the backstory to the parade because I had to discover his other selves. Uh, he he painted in a lot of different styles. Uh, he had a he an erotic self and a depressed a, self. Yeah. And, uh, so trying to get a sense of what he had achieved was a lot to take on, and I gave myself crash course of trying to see as much as I could in the Siluan Museum, which is a few corridors in a the organization that took over his artwork to save it from being landfill when he had to move into an old age home because his wife was getting Alzheimer's and he couldn't deal with it in his late 80s. So, But the uh, essay is extraordinary. I mean, you. it's a really, it's a truly, um, um, I mean, it's a work of, of passion and erudition at the same time. So, so one really one learns a lot, not only about Sai Luen, but his whole period, mm -hmm. and precisely about the different styles he has. We're going to look at a, a little rendition you did of the book, mm -hmm. so better than my opening it up, which, <laughs> well, this shows you the problem, which was dramatic, but, but probably didn't give you a good sense. You know, one thing I'm very proud of in the book, Tell aside me. from the accordion fold itself, is my years at Top Bubblegum really served me well. Can I have the box for a moment? Yeah, yeah, of course. You see, it's, a, uh, it's what they call an Italian format. Bookstores hate this because they don't stay even. So I put it in a vertical box. Ah. When you take it out, you don't notice that it was a horizontal book. It just comes out of the box and you do it. But it has a chance of staying in what few bookstores are still hardly uh, still standing. And it can stand on a shelf like any other book this size. Smart. It was definitely Topps Bubblegum point of purchase selling at the candy counter, having to design the backboards for the baseball and garbage pail kit and other boxes. That you're I'm losing me here, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Baseball, um, I'll explain okay. to you Yeah, later. you're losing me here, but, but I, I, I'm <laughs> sort of understanding. Purchase. Yeah, no, it's a, I, I hadn't noticed that really as something that would help this book uh, be, be featured in bookstores. Let's... let's um, Let's look at this small um, minute video. We'll, we'll show it without sound, I think. Okay, it's five minutes. You have to concentrate. Yes, no sound, so really look. So there's about ten things I want to say at once. Um, and that is impossible. I know, it just becomes a blur of white noise like silence. This has a soundtrack. Uh, it was part of a thing I did in 2013 called Wordless about this genre of book of telling stories and images but with no words that flourished between 
1918 and 1938 or so. Uh, but the reason it's without music here, because this was done at BAM after spending a year collaborating with the composer Philip Johnston and the band, which was called The Silent Six. Uh, and each of these woodcut novels that I was showing, this is not woodcuts, but still, um, each of these books had a different tone, and uh, like Sai, like me, Philip is a stylistic switch hitter, so he's able to make music appropriate to each one of these things. And I've only really seen it with the music, except when making it, but showing it this way was revenge against this total asshole I had to deal with in Lubbock, Texas last week. Um, the, uh, the tech person who was supposed to be there in case anything went wrong saw what I was doing up to that point in the talk. Uh, it had a lot of negative comments about Donald Trump. But this is the heart of Red Texas, Lummox, Lubbock, Texas. And uh, as a result, I, I said, um, we're having a problem. Is the sound can't be heard. Can we stop and start again? This was an important point of the part of the lecture. And he said, no. I said, but you're, you're the tech support. Come here and support me. No, nothing I can do. And at that point, my head was exploding, so I could either start screaming at him or try to uh, recoup this lecture again. So I said, fine, we'll look at it silent, which I'd never seen, and it really was silent. These uh, people in the room, of which there are about 600 or so, maybe that's like here, I don't know. Uh, the result was rapt attention. Of course, they had more background by then about Psy than you have yet. I'll just, in parentheses, yeah, say... Give it some. Yeah, in parentheses, there's a lot, but yeah. in parentheses for now, at least, unless you have... You want to prod some things. He was uh, part of a, an elite forces of uh, uh, GIs called the Ritchie Boys. Which, which, when I read that, was extraordinary to me because my advisor, my dissertation advisor 100 years ago in Princeton was a Ritchie boy. And I wrote to him. His name is Victor Brombert. He's now 95. I wrote to him and I said, did you know Sai Lewin? And he said, I didn't know him, but of course I know that he was part of the Ritchie Boys and he features in this movie the that they made about... Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, So he was a part of this elite force. After uh, getting to America, we can talk about how that and why that in a moment, but I just want to do that so I can do the other nine things that I wanted to tell you, which is... Um, he uh, came over at the age of 15. We'll go back over the things that happened later, but even though he was a pacifist, he joined the army in 1942 uh, because he remembered what it was like to be uh, uh, beaten up regularly in the small part of Germany that he was in as the Polish kike uh, had no business being in Germany. So... We can go back over that more, too. The main thing is, as a Ritchie boy, he was at the front in Normandy, uh, where he invented a better way of prop doing the loudspeaker propaganda from a truck than they had been using with him, which was, he was supposed to be out there saying, so put down your weapons, come forth and surrender. In the middle of this battlefield, uh, you're losing the war, we'll let you go back to your family, just come forward. The Germans, of course, aimed at wherever the sound was coming from, which was Sai and his sound truck, and he had to talk to the brass about they would have to train somebody new every two weeks to do this because he wouldn't survive it. So they let him stand away from his truck or move the speakers away. And that worked a lot better. But what worked even better, the same way I was talking about my point of purchase display, his uh, brain said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to drop flyers onto the enemy and it'll be printed instructions in German on how to surrender. And he got a great response because the Germans were really good at following instructions. <laughs> 
So, uh, so he did that, but then he wandered through the front. He had a number of concussions. He had internal bleeding. He was just living on schnapps for a couple of years. And then he was at Buchenwald uh, the day after it was liberated, and that's when he said, I'm done turned himself into the hospital and came back to America. So this was gestating, this work that you saw, while he was on the front, and he began working on it after he got out of a VA hospital about eight years later. There's a lot of other things to fill in, but I just wanted to say that uh, this was the work that introduced me and almost anybody who did still know about him uh, to him and his work, which actually was very uh, well-received. Uh, he was a painter from the age... Of, should I keep doing this part, or do you, you want to you, do this? You know, you, you may. I, I will hit some of these, these notes. Then as, let's as just one, do it as yeah, you have I mean, it. No, no, no. Um, I, 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 do, I, I, mean, I have, like, uh, whatever that essay was, 5,000 words on it. I know, I know. Um, and, and, but, but in order that I don't feel redundant, I'll ask, <laughs> you a, I'll ask you a few questions so that we'll unpack some of this. Can I, um, can I tell you something that's funny? You know who uh, Chip McGrath is, right? Yes. So Chip was... Uh, uh, interviewing me at the point of my Jewish uh, museum show. Yeah. And at the end of it, he said, ironic considering my background, but it was very funny. He said, it's a joy to interview you. It's like having a self-cleaning oven. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, let's do no, it with the old-fashioned way. And, um, you know, my, my, my seven words, which I, I only really <laughs> spoke about once, which was yesterday, um, I, I took from my mother because when I was 11 years old, my mother said to me, "You know, Paulie, we have, we have two ears and one mouth." Probably because I wasn't listening. So, <laughs> so um, later on, I, I heard it. No, I, um, I think. Although one of the best interviewers oh. I ever had was uh, at some point, I was being interviewed by Studs Terkel on his oh, radio God. show. And he was great. He had five mouths and one ear. So you know, no, no, I, he was fantastic. <laughs> he was I, great. I, um, I once had him when I was back in Los Angeles, interviewed by Tim Robbins, um, uh, who was a huge fan, and who said to me, "But can Studs be interviewed? I mean, he's you know, he's interviewed everyone." So I said, "Well, that's your challenge." And he managed. And then that evening, we learned that. Studs had performed in the Chicago premiere, I think in 1938, of Cradle Will Rock, which was a movie that mm. Tim Robbins had made. So all kinds Perfect. of extraordinary connections. I had to and, just keep interrupting and say so you have to take a station break now. Okay, no, but you know, Studs... <laughs> oh, but Studs, I'm sorry, I interrupted No, 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 no it's all right. Studs, um, I remember, would every... Because I, I interviewed him once, and Studs would, every sort of five minutes, say, here we are was sort of amazed by that fact. But um, you're me about the words. But um, I, I think what was really interesting watching it silently was to hear how, how attentive an audience can be. You know, when... Mm. Well, it was, I mean, it's part of the wordless book, and it seemed yeah. great to have it with silence, although these pictures were designed for the music. Like right. how, how to show this without turning it into a movie, which it has something in common with even as pictures on a page uh, was difficult. I didn't want you to think you were watching like really bad Korean animation, North Korean animation, uh, as a way of getting the book. But there was a problem. It felt a little bit like taking sausages and grinding them up into pigs because it's really designed to be experienced as pages that you move through at your well, own Well, you will. Life. You will. Get the book. 
uh, and enjoy enjoy reading it in, and touching it in a, in a completely... And, and these pictures were made before I knew that the originals existed from the first edition. I, I did that, which just looks like bad Xeroxes. So while the book is supposedly dying, it's possible to make much more beautiful books than ever. Like These just look like kind of bad Xeroxes compared to the um, final result with eight more pictures. Art, now we're going to look at, at your work um, as juxtaposed to, mm. to size. <laughs> I love this this yes. image, and comment as as you will. Well, I'll just say wish. that uh, uh, Abrams had asked me to do some kind of a print for a limited edition, so I was still with us, uh, and for reasons that'll become clear probably later, he signed his hundred or so. I signed the little remark I put on the right, and it took a long time. He was having a lot of problems with his hands, um, but eventually we got through it, and he'd been practicing for weeks to do it because he could no longer use his right hand. That one of the pictures from the parade, yeah. This was an outtake originally, so it wasn't in the book you just had screened for you. Another outtake, a parade of coffins. Sai at about the time he made uh, the parade in late 40s. Such a familiar face to me. Sai <laughs> <coughs> in 1942, he just married his beloved wife, Rennie, uh, who died a year before he did this. He died uh, in July of this year. Uh, I don't want to say too much because you no, probably no, have no. a way of orchestrating this information. Sai is a Ritchie boy and drinking schnapps. In, in the, the next image, you, you, you say that Sai's ghost hangs like a shroud tacked up in the hallway to my studio. Mm -hmm. this, now, this is not his shroud. It's the only self-portrait he ever made, which to me is astonishing because uh, he wasn't directed that way. He really had to paint what was behind that face, and that's what he devoted himself to. And he wanted to engage with the world as best he could. I thought you were going to show the picture by Einstein, because one of his fans was Albert Einstein. Who, when, who, who wrote an incredible... He wrote a letter to Sai yeah. after seeing them in a gallery, and that was used as the introduction to the book, saying, our time needs you and your work. Uh, and it doesn't take a genius to know that that's still true, more so than ever these days, perhaps. But the photo of Einstein and the photo of Sai, close up with the mustache, uh, were both shot by Lottie Jacoby, a famous photographer who, as well as her experimental photographs, was known as a portrait photographer, and she was a friend of Einstein's. So both of those were taken by her, and it's probably how Einstein got to see the pictures, because she showed them in a gallery she had then to show other people's work as well as hers that's about, I don't know, eight blocks, ten blocks from here. The next set of images really, really deeply mattered to me. And I remember when I came to see your performance, and it was quite a performance at BAM, you showed those images, and they're really powerful, by, by Franz Masserel, a Belgian artist who was tremendously important to me because I was discovering as a young man someone who my grandfather knew fairly well and who was very much part of, of my mm. family, sort of the intellectual landscape of my upbringing, which was Stefan Zweig. Mm -hmm. And Masserel mattered tremendously to Sai Lewin and, and to you, and mattered to him very much because his father had given him, I think, a book 
of Franz Masseril when he was 12 or 13. Yeah, when he was 13, he got this book, and all of a sudden he saw pictures talking to each other the way they should. He hadn't heard of comics, as far as I know, but he'd seen churches and multiple pictures that way. That's Masseril on the right. Uh, he invented this form, uh, the woodcut novel, that owed something to German chapbooks and whatever, those little woodcut books with passages from the Bible. And it also owed something to Japanese uh, woodcuts that were affecting his generation, and of course to silent film as well. Originally presented one picture on the right, blank page on the left, so you'd look at each one. And what became really interesting to me is this started off a real fad for these books, the wordless novels. Uh, a lot of people got inspired by them. And what they were was they were favorites of German intelligence. Yeah, and in, in your book, you, you write, I've tried to figure out why this Belgian expressionist books attracted eloquent praise from intellectual heavyweights such as Thomas Mann, Romain Roland, Hermann Hesse, and Stefan Zweig, despite the book's suspicious similarity to the disrepu disreputable comics form I love, a form almost entirely dismissed by Western intellectuals and cultural elites till the day before yesterday. Mm. Right. You'd never have come if it was the day before yesterday. See, like, comics would still be low culture. But what these things did, when asked what his favorite movie was, Thomas Mann said, Passionate Journey, of course, which was a book by Mazarille. Uh, so in German culture, this was really urgent, and they got printed finally in rather cheap editions so everybody could have them. Uh, here he is, pissing on everything from a great height. These books had uh, a real kind of quality. They had a sense of humor, a slightly wooden one, but a sense of humor, and they were very free for woodcuts uh, as, a, as a way of working. This is a few images from his very first called Passions of a Man that sort of set the tone for the rest. Um, and what <clears throat> he did was inspire a lot of artists that came after. As soon as they saw the book, they wanted to make one. It's like what happened with graphic novels. Now they're considered graphic novels avant la lettre or something, you know? So one of the people he influenced was uh, an artist named Lind Ward, for the uh, lowbrows amongst you, maybe you know The uh, Little Bear, which was a great children's book he did. He won a lot of awards for his illustration. But he was also a um, really great woodcut engraver. He did this book when he was a kid after studying in Germany. He did his book called God's Man, which is very gothic looking, a very Faustian tale, beautiful drawings. Uh, but a lot of people really appreciated and took it seriously based on the reviews I found that came out on the uh, Black Friday of the Great Depression, and this rather, at the time, expensive book became a bestseller, which encouraged other people to do it as well. But uh, Susan Sontag uses it in her essay on camp as an example of camp, his uh, book. Anyway, I got to know all that because I was asked to help the Library of America do their first picture book, which is the six complete wordless novels of Lind Ward. Um, so that's part of the spectrum of these things. But The Matrix was really done by Mazzarelli. Which and, and what was so, so powerful for me in reading your essay is um, where, you, where you talk precisely about the high and the low, mm -hmm. the fact that in, for a long time, the graphic novel in some way and comics existed in churches. Mm -hmm. You learned the yes. history by looking at, at, the, at those windows, yeah. you know, which was what, I mean, those windows are great because they're really comics, uh, but before they had newsprint, so they had to use glass. 
And it's why, um, in English at least, the word story, because I'm sorry to back up a half a second. No, 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 okay. When I looked it up in the dictionary, a comic was a narrative series of pictures. And in the days before the internet, it was very hard to waste time. So I looked up narrative, and <laughs> I found out that a narrative is a story. And then I found out that at least in English, the word story comes from the medieval Historic. Latin historia, and it was basically those stories on a building that told the story of one of the great superheroes who could walk on water and turn it into wine. Um, so this is a direct relationship to comics. It's a direct relationship uh, with the idea of uh, a picture story as it developed in the years after. And it also was an indication that comics pages, comic books, have a structure, because they're literally a narrative series of cartoons. And I tried to approach all of my comics making after that day of wasting time in the dictionary, looking up all the sub-clauses of that definition. Um, and, then that, in, and then in your essay, later on, you, you write about how the Enlightenment changed everything. Well, the Enlightenment changed everything. For one thing, it invented childhood, because in order to learn to read, you had to have time to learn to read. So while poor kids were dying in coal mines, the rich kids had to be in the nursery learning this complex code of learning how to read. Because if, in the ages before, there was this thing called the age of reason. Like for a while, you'd be walking into walls and pissing in the stove and whatever. And then when you reached seven, you're supposed to go out in the fields with the other grown-ups and hoe the fields and drink meat after work with the rest of them, and now we needed citizens who were better educated, and that led to downgrading the value of pictures, which is how most people understood things, hence those uh, church windows, and had to slow down to learn text. And as a result, there were essays, like the most, the one I keep referring to Lessing. is Leakawan, uh, right, where this uh, guy named uh, Lessing. Gotthold Lessing wrote a book after looking at that uh, statue of Leakawan, this uh, late Roman, I think, a statue that has him being strangled by all the snakes and his sons being strangled by serpents as a punishment. And uh, he says, huh, in this picture, Leakoan just, I don't remember how it was phrased in the translation I read, but Leakoan basically looked, uh, I'm sorry, um, yeah, he looked like he was just passing gas. He looks very calm, and yet in the Aeneid, um, he's shrieking in agony while he's being strangled. Uh, and his sons are being strangled. So the essay is about, what's up with that? Um, and he says, in this essay on the nature of pictures and the nature of words, this makes it sound like I went to college. I got kicked out of college. I had to go back many years later to get an honorary degree from the school that kicked me out. I couldn't resist. But in any case, at that point, um, he was saying that there's a proper province for words and for pictures. Uh, pictures are supposed to be the pregnant moment, encompassing and emblematizing a story with one image, like that statue. And therefore, it has to include the entire spectrum in one beautiful picture. And shrieking in acne, at least uh, in the 18th century, was not considered a beautiful thing to to show. But then in the Aeneid, it's possible because that uses words. And words automatically exist in time. One word happens after the other. So narrative, poetry, allows itself to move through time and hence be the proper repository for narrative because you can have somebody shriek in agony and be noble in the next stanza. That's why you can't say ten things at the same time. That's why what? That's why you couldn't say ten things at the same time in part. Yeah. It's better to have I all know. the comic panels out at once yeah. and then you can read them in the order you want. But here, I really felt that uh, this was sort of like castigating comics about two or three hundred years before they happened. But you know what's so interesting about that for me is that I grew up 
under the sign of blessing. I, I grew up so much, my parents were so, I mean, so opposed mm -hmm. to my ever reading comics. Well, pictures had I mean, to be downgraded, so, that's why yeah. comics were downgraded. I mean, even, even growing up in Belgium, um, if I was caught reading Tata, it was a problem. Wow, you were born before your time, huh? Yeah. yeah. But, but here the thing was that mixing words with pictures was even worse than showing a painting with three pictures of the same person at different times. Uh, so mixing words and pictures was absolutely unkosher, you know? And, and then it came back. It came back, but not so long ago, yeah. you know? Uh, well, it came back least... in part with Art Spiegelman. It came, yeah, yeah a little a bit before. A lot, yeah, like 1880s, I think. But, uh, but even before that. So the thing was that these picture books, by having a blank page and one picture to contemplate, allowed you to take it in as a pregnant moment. If you turned the page, you could be fooled into not thinking it takes place 20 seconds later, because it's another pregnant moment, a single picture to contemplate. And that uh, allowed it to pass through the... Um, guardians of the culture who saw pictures mixed with other pictures telling a story in time to let down their guard. One, one last series of Masseril. This is, yeah, and, then, oh, and now, now a painting by side. Yeah, um, now we begin some this of is, the parade. Yeah, now this isn't from the parade. This is a painting he made when he got really restless with what he had started doing yeah. right after the war. This is quite large. It's collaged. If you see, it's not just black silhouettes. It's him chopping apart very expensive paintings he had made. Uh, because I don't know where we have it, but he went through a beautiful period. After World War II, after the uh, uh, VA hospital, they said, you're fine now. And in his autobiography, he says, I'm not so sure. But when he began painting after the war again, when he picked up his brushes, he said he was astonished to find that he had banished black from his palette. His pictures were much darker before the war. And then after the war, they became beautiful, in a certain sense of beautiful, like those post-impressionist paintings uh, by Utrillo or by Feininger, uh, that decorative cubism, very uh, attractive. His paintings became luminescent, and those sold incredibly well. Like one thing I found out was a lot of the paintings that he was showing after the war with a number of different gallery shows that would sell out, they were these luminescent uh, paintings, very knowledgeable, but in that zone, and he was selling them for ten and fifteen thousand dollars a piece. So looking it up on what's a dollar worth in 1958, let's say, so each of those paintings were eighty to a hundred thousand dollars. And then when he began doing darker paintings like this one, they said, uh, "Sai, could you uh, do more like the other kind? We can move those." And he would chafe at this; he couldn't do it. Um, so the dark side had to come out, and this was a struggle for him for years afterwards. And then he stopped, right? He said he stopped he at said, some uh, point. He, he said to himself, art is priceless. This is part of the amazing story of Sai Lu, and he was doing this for a number of years, but eventually he got frustrated. He had to make what he had to make, and he said, art is not a commodity, it's priceless. And then when he was finally like fed up, he said, you know, and when something's priceless, it's, it's worthless. It's worthless. Yeah. So at that point, he took all these paintings that he'd been selling, I mean, for $80,000 in today's dollars uh, or more, and began chopping them up and using them so they could sit closer to each other in collages, in triptychs, and in long, long series of paintings. It made me, it made me think of that wonderful line of Oscar Wilde, who said that people know the price of everything but the value of nothing. And he went through that phase where he just 
stopped wanting. He, well, what he, he decided to do is he left all his galleries. He said he wasn't going to put up for sale anymore, which only made him more prolific because he wasn't hindered from doing what he was curious and about. And how did he survive? He taught at uh, uh, Cooper Union and I think maybe the New School. Uh, and his wife worked as a special needs teacher in New Paltz. And he just was churning out many, many more paintings in many different styles because he said, style I thought would choke me. And this is a close-up of something that existed in a series he did right before he left uh, um, um, New Paltz to go to that old age home to take care of his wife who was uh, becoming... Um, uh, Alzheimer's, and he couldn't take care of her in his late 80s. So he was doing a series called Cy Lewin's Odyssey as these, uh, I think, 20 by 40 canvases, but it was like a maquette. He was making this thing that was, he didn't know how to make a maquette for a book. So he'd print things out uh, that were from his uh, memoir, and then he would take old paintings, cut up parts of them, put them in, make color copies, add to them, and they became uh, his retrospective of his whole life. Uh, and I think he did 300 pictures before he stopped. Uh, so it was like a graphic novel wandering off into the ozone layer. Uh, this is one of those beautiful pictures. Yeah. Beautiful picture with a... With a backstory. With a backstory, which... which I I'm tempted to say you should tell. I mean, it's, you. It's, no, you tell it. Okay. I think you'll tell it a bit better. Well, this thing was made in the height of his 1950s uh, period, where he was making these beautiful pictures. And here's a beautiful day in Central Park near the lake that has the rowboats. Now, this all goes back to something that happened to Sai that was one of the most traumatic things that happened to him, uh, which is... He was living on the west side of Central Park with his father. His father and mother had by then separated. Uh, and he would go to uh, the east side of the park to study at, I can't remember the name of the art school, where he never had many friends. He became friendly with Oshiel Gorky, who was at the same school. But he was painting every day on the east side of the park. Then he'd walk back and stop at the Met very often, wander through the rooms, talk to the paintings, then go to this spot in uh, the park where the boat basin is, and he'd just sit there and think or contemplate. There was a cop sitting in one of these boats, and he beckoned Sai over for some reason and began talking with him, and when he heard Sai's accent, he said, let me see your papers, and he looked at the papers, invited him into the boat. They went out into the middle of the lake. When they're in the middle of the lake, he took the money out of the wallet, put it in his own pocket, took out a truncheon, and beat Sai to an inch of his life, saying, you goddamn Jews, go back where you came from. We don't want you here. He had finally had this heavenly year where he'd escaped Polish anti-Semitism and German anti-Semitism, only to meet the land of his dreams of cowboys and freedom, where he was had the shit beat out of him very badly. Nobody stopped in the other boats who were having a day more like this one in the painting because they figured if it's a cop, he must know what he's doing. So at, this, at that moment, it was more like Jews' lives uh, matter, but the same principle exists here, and he used to write letters to the Times even about the Black Lives Matter things because he was um, a passionate letter writer to the Times. He had a number of them published and a number not. But in any case, this was him revisiting a traumatic moment that led to a suicide attempt uh, that only a fluke saved him from. And then he was trying to assimilate it by working in this black is expunged from his pictures moment, you know? And it makes them feel very personal rather than just pretty pictures. But here's a picture from that same period where he says he couldn't help it, the darkness returned. He felt things in the shadows. 
This was after he had kind of more or less just given up on making things people wanted from him. He was making lots of triptychs. This one shows several different styles with paintings, especially on the right, cut up from other and earlier paintings so they could talk to each other. And he made many, many triptychs. It brought him back to the uh, uh, Renaissance and medieval triptychs that he had loved. The next picture has a whole story to it. Oh, yeah. And if you don't mind, I'll... It will be hard, but I'll read what you say about oh, it okay. in the book. Um, I think it's a quotation from his unpublished memoir. Mm -hmm. where he said, I checked into the nearest medical station. This is after visiting Buchenwald. I was urinating and vomiting, blood worse than ever, and my insides were one wrenching mess. I knew that I was finished as a soldier seeing the world for what I thought it was, a slaughterhouse, a bordello, an insane asylum run by butchers, pimps, and madmen, and man, a festering, putrid, slimy, excretion polluting the face of the earth, a hospital ship brought back to America, and half a year later, I was discharged. And as you say, as good as new, one of the doctors said, I was not so sure. No matter how often I try and succeed to escape the images of war and the Holocaust, inevitably Buchenwald looms up again and appears incomprehensible. The sights and smells of memory pursue. How is it possible? How could the cultured Germans have permitted themselves to be led to commit, commit such atrocity? How could the Allies, the great democracies, stand by and watch the Holocaust unfold? It may be the sense of loss beyond belief in a divine order and now left alone to our devices that has stamped this, our modern age, and most visibly modern art. It is a world where the center no longer holds. Instead, spinning off into a shower of often brilliant sparks and fragments. In its restless unease, its fragmentation, its surreal, disjointed imagery, modern art reflects the age of the Holocaust, even as it attempts to escape into trivia. It's why I like talking with him so much, you know, because he was a ray of sunshine in my life. <laughs> he was much more optimistic than I am, really. Uh, this was one of the heavier things. In his, but, you know, what he kept saying is, art, if we're going to survive, we have to become a matriarchy because women have a stake in keeping the world together. So when I asked him whether he was going to vote for Bernie or Hillary, he said, Hillary, of course. And I said, but, but how can you do that? You've described yourself as being to the left of Karl Marx. He said, yeah, Bernie's a very intelligent man, but we need a matriarchy. So I hope he's right. This painting, which I guess somehow inspired that passage, it did, um, is very large. Each of those little squares is uh, about uh, one foot eight inches by one foot eight inches of canvas. Uh, they're made up of pieces of his paintings from his entire life. He called it Eke Homo, and it's collage plus paint together to give a picture of him. He made a few of these. This is a close-up, so you can see bits of 
these uh, priceless paintings that are now worthless uh, that he chopped up for it. So you can see in the, uh, this detail on the bottom row, one from the end, that's Rosa Luxemburg. Uh, you can see some of his uh, figure drawing in there, a lot of the abstractions, and it's all joined together to make his face somehow, but without it looking like him. Were you, were you serious when you said he was more uplifting? Yeah. I was, yeah. I don't joke, actually. <laughs> um, but he was really, um, even at the end, we, uh, this avowed atheist said, I don't know, maybe I'll see Rennie again. Who's to say? You know? So it was part of uh, his daily life, even though when he saw Rennie near the end, she'd been moved to a more assisted living facility, and he would see her every day for an hour and then go back to painting, which is all he did. Uh, um, and in a situation now where he didn't have to cook or clean, so he's just taking care of his I'm, painting. I'm, I must say, on a personal level, I'm so sorry. We were going to go and meet him yes, together. Yes, we were going to have him Skyped in, but yeah, he we can't were, leave yeah. the facility, but he died yeah. in July right after... Uh, we Literally saw, by two weeks, we yeah. were going to go and spend a day with That's him, right. which would have been just... But, truly extraordinary. But, uh, when he would see Rennie, he was really sweet. Like they would watch television together sometimes, and they'd hold hands, and she, in full-blown dementia, would look up and said, did I ever tell you about Psy? And he would tell me this thing kind of mournfully, but said, it's so nice to have her around. You know, um, so that was true. This is when he decided to make a series of paintings. They would get enormous. He was quite prolific. This is from something he started right around the time that he finished uh, the parade and was moving into these pretty pictures. He started something called the centipede. He wanted to make a hundred feet of paintings that had to talk to each other, but then he kept going. So he said, "I had to change the name to the millipede." <laughs> It's a great sense of humor. Yeah, so, and so this yeah, was... Uh, but do you see it as relating to comics? Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, you know, can I tell you something that upset me? Like, can I tell you about size death, or are we waiting for that moment? Still? We're waiting for the moment, but we can talk about it Well, twice. I'll just say that uh, after he died, we'll talk about the rest of it later, I was in the south of France. He died shortly after seeing the book uh, for the first time. I went down to see him. Uh, but... I want, I tried from the small village in France where we were to contact somebody at the Times. And eventually they just didn't want to have any part of giving him an obituary. They said, uh, it doesn't seem to us that he was a transformative figure in 20th century art. So the, his main claim to fame is that Art Spiegelman likes his work. So if he had died in 2007 when I was time, one of Time's 100 most influential people, maybe they would have listened. But it's amazing, though, uh, you know, what, 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 what qualifies uh, the worthy life for the obituary. <laughs> and the thing is, if I was there to debate them, I would have said, no, he wasn't that important as transformative of the 20th century, although he encapsulated it, but he's urgent for the 21st century. And that includes these uh, chains of images, because now... Comics have got transformed into graphic novels. It lets them sit in beautiful institutions like this with their head held high. It's, they're now part of college courses in the graphic novel. Uh, they're now part of what uh, the granting apparatus will grant. When I was young and tried to get some money from Mouse, they never knew what to do with it when I first started, and I'd show pages. Council of the Arts program always said, well, we'll put it in mixed media because it has words and pictures, and then Namjoon Pike would get some more money and 
move on, you know. Uh, but now that's all changed, and yet the, the museums and galleries have started to show things that relate to this. Uh, certainly I had a show of my comics, but in a way you're looking at stuff, like looking at the wood that Franz Masriel carved rather than the prints. Um, my work was really made for reproduction. Despite Walter Benjamin, I think each copy of a book has an aura, and that's uh, my opinion. And they're willing to show these things as process pictures, and a few cartoonists have now had shows in reputable museums, but what's to come may be more like, say, Jim Shaw, who had a great retrospective not that long ago in the New Museum, and a young artist who, when he saw this, got very, very excited uh, by um, uh, seeing size work because he saw a forefather, uh, Keith Mayerson, who makes his pictures as installations of paintings that are meant to talk to each other. So, although this is only narrative in the sense of being an absolutely morphing centipede that goes through, millipede, sorry, that goes through uh, a lot of mood transformations and it buckles into complete psychedelia, which represents his more sensual side, and then back into these monsters. So that's one, and his really big one nobody has ever seen. Uh, he did something called The Procession. You've seen some of them in the book. But what that was, was inspired directly by the silent films that were important to him. Uh, he made these canvases. They were, again, uh, 20 by 40. And they were shot in scenes. So some of them are even quite narrative. Some of them are linked pictures. And they'd be between 3 and 11 paintings long. And then there'd be a segue painting that would change, be just a color field of some kind. And then another sequence. So for him, these were like scenes in a movie. He said, within the sequence, it's better to keep them in the order they're in. But you can put them in any order you want. You can become the film editor. But this would take up that really, really large room in the Whitney that I'd like him to get for that someday. I just want to see what the uh, procession looks like altogether. Well, maybe, 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 maybe it'll happen. Maybe you know the the gatekeepers who kept him out of the pages of the obituary will open the doors for maybe. him to Maybe, although you come. Know, now it becomes hard because every once in a while he would sell one of those and then he'd have to work around it. Or in one case, this got triggered because you just said the gatekeepers. He took a beautiful set of three that's in the book that was homage to Rodin's great Gates of Hell. Um, and that's actually, if you want to see it and not buy the book, you can go to the New Yorker's blog site, and it's one of the pictures in there, a group of three. Uh, but there's still enough of it so one could make something quite credible. And I would like to see, because I get to like his work more and more, you know. I well, knew you, I liked you, the you parade. You get to like it. I was going to ask you about this, the appreciation of working on him. You, you've learned to... to, yeah. to Appreciate even the ones that I didn't appreciate yeah. as much when I first saw them. And there's still, obviously, I have periods of his that lasted 24 hours that I like better than the next 24 hours of somebody who's always changing but it, it up. But, you know, with, the, with, the, with your anecdote about the obituary, it, it leads me to really wonder, you know, what, what becomes truly valuable and what becomes truly appreciated by critics and how will the, the art critics now react will it become a classic? Will it become something that people will appreciate I really hope it gets seen beyond and can the decide. fact that Art Spiegelman likes his work? I mean, I don't usually devote myself to another artist's work for a year and a half or two years and try to learn what the body of it is. But I think, you know, for me, obviously, it came through that lens of this feels like uh, these pictures of uh, the recycling of war through the ages again and again through these victory marches and death... Uh, seemed to me like it was emotional 
But it wasn't Talukic, which is a phrase I coined some years ago, which was the violins in the background, uh, milking it for all it's worth, you know? It was just somebody passionately responding to the nature of war. Uh, so I was able to buy into that, and then I had to look at these pictures, some of which were a little syrupy, some of which were a little psychedelic and fun. But what it is with artists is when you begin to trust them, then you read the lesser works, you read the other works, and you find some of these so-called lesser works become the major works. Uh, and that's just a process with reading, with looking, that once you begin to find who's home, you want to go visit there. So now all those pictures are raised in um, my estimation. We'll, we'll move a, a bit quicker through through the work now because I do want to get to yours too. Maybe maybe we will we will talk a little bit about this moment, mm. um, bit of a terrifying moment. So should I do? Yeah, you go. Okay, so you go. I mean, I can I can say that this was another. This was one of the biggest traumas in his life. The trauma was he couldn't paint anymore. And as he would tell me every day, you know what keeps me alive? Curiosity. I want to know what I'm going to paint the next day. Uh, and then he started complaining a couple of years ago about this rheumatoid arthritis. Nothing would help it. Uh, and it made it very hard to hold a brush. Uh, and he would do it against the pain and sometimes would forget for a little while, but it was getting worse and worse. At some point, he, in fact, he asked me if I could get him some marijuana salve. And since I was going to Colorado with Wordless, I tried, but they wouldn't give it to me without him being present for a doctor's examination. Came back, I told him how great his piece went over. Uh, those same visuals, but with music, was very stirring, and it's near the end of the Wordless show. Uh, but I said, I couldn't do it. He said, it's okay. And like, you should have been there, Sai. It was great. He said, I can't travel. I know. Then about a week or so later, I get an email from his daughter, Nina, saying, Sai did something incredibly stupid last night. What he did was he, you know, he had this miniature studio. It looked like any art studio, but it was one bedroom of a two-bedroom condo. He stretched canvases there. The place was filled with piles of canvases and drawers of canvases, and he just couldn't stand it. So he took the buzzsaw he used for, uh, sorry, for uh, cutting up the wood for his stretching his canvases, and he applied it to his right hand. And fortunately, he didn't know enough about anatomy. As he said to the doctor later when they thought he was crazy, he said, you know, you're crazy, Sai. We should have put you away, except you're not crazy. And he said, I miscalculated how hard bone is. I'll never try it again. Um, and then, if had he done it, I suppose, from the other side, he probably would have succeeded in killing himself. But what he did was he painted the word enough that you just saw large on his studio wall. He tried to do this, and ultimately... Um, not only did he survive it, but although his hand wouldn't work again, he had self-medicated. He'd cut all the nerve endings in his hand, basically. And he tried to paint with his left hand, but couldn't do it to his own satisfaction. He knew what his right hand could do with a paintbrush. And so he said, I figure I'll make sculptures now, because I never worked that way, so I have nothing to compare it to. So what he did was, he said, you've got to come and see my installation. So in that place, he had what you just saw, this thing that he had made of hands coming out of the ground like zombies, kind of touching. And then in the book, my son, Dash, was looking through this two-sided book and realized that on the other side of this, literally, was the picture from the parade that uh, Paul just flashed at you. So this was hands coming out of the ground in 1957 and then in 2016. 
Returning now to you. Okay. Oh. <laughs> Returning, I, I want you to, to explain to me what, what is said there. Okay, this is part of a sequence from an introduction I did to a book called Breakdowns, reintroducing the work I'm quite proud of from 78 that nobody wanted to see. In a new edition with little comics memories, these are two man, uh, a few panels or whatever from a sequence called Eyeball, how I'd always be assigned to right field when nothing would happen, and then I'd get bored, and this was after the humiliation of you take him, no you take him. Um, and, you know, at that time... Uh, not playing baseball back in the uh, 50s was like lower than being a girl. It was terrible. Uh, so in that scene, I'm in the outfield looking at a 3D comic. What's so great about seeing panels in red, I would say, at a 3D comic, since I'm virtually blind in my left eye? Then, uh, heads up, amblyopia, amblyopia, a lazy eye, inside, made my whole world 2D. Spastic, retard, doofus. So confusing 2D comics with reality seems natural to me. I started hiding in the library after school to avoid further ignominy. Jesus, he turns into a giant bug? This is cooler than the Twilight Zone. <laughs> and learned that Kafka probably sucked at baseball, too. So, uh, one of my great inspirations. Mad Comics. Um, Mad co Comics was postmodernism avant la lettre, mixing it all up together for a lowly 10 cent comic book to have something that looked like the highest middle brow cultural news source, uh, Life magazine, with a collage on the cover shot from the window of their Lafayette Street window and saying, Beautiful Girl of the Month, with a drawing by Basil Wolverton, a cover conceived by Harvey Kurtzman, my hero. At a time when uh, comic books were under siege, Mad would make fun of other comic books and the rest of the media. And it was saying something new. It was saying uh, the whole adult world, uh, the media is lying to you. And I believe Trump read this issue of Mad also. Uh, but uh, we here at Mad are part of the media. So it taught you to think for yourself. And I think... Except for Trump, it raised a generation that learned to be skeptical and to uh, question, say, the Vietnam War when they came of age, we came of age. Uh, it was really important. It obviously influenced Robert Crumb as well as me. He was scarred by this very same cover, and it uh, just uh, underground I, comics. I, I, love, I love what you say about, about Crumb. You write that his work seemed to be dredged directly from the subconscious, but couldn't glibly be labeled surreal. They were all too real, urgent, existential, scary, and hilarious, though often without anything as conventional as a punchline. Mm. So Crumb is probably the most important avatar of underground comics. I was already making something almost like underground comics until I saw his work and had to go back to a kind of school, even though I dropped out, to kind of figure out this guy was really doing something brand new. Comics without punchlines, comics that began to pull the limits on all uh, taboos that had been put in place by that Comic Code Authority seal after the comic book uh, uh, censorship that was uh, came as a result of Senate hearings and the problems with um, 
uh, comic books for parents, teachers, uh, and uh, church figures. And this was bringing the rise of the repressed. It all came back with Crumb. And it was the first time that comics developed a kind of conscious avant-garde in the 60s. Were you here when he came? When Craig yeah. it was incredible. We had him here <laughs> once with his wife, Eileen, and once with Robert Hughes. Mm -hmm. two two remarkable nights. Um, the next image I really like, and I want to ask you in which direction you're walking. Oh, this is from my sketchbook, right. Well, actually, I'm falling down the gutter in the middle of the two pages, but I'm trying to walk this tightrope between Crumb and Steinberg somehow. Uh, Crumb comes more naturally. The lettering there is kind of hairy and organic and... I don't know, phallic and yonic and whatever. Um, and on the right is one of these Steinberg um, abstract sculptures. Uh, and, you know, Steinberg said, Francoise got to know him, I only got to hear about knowing him through my wife, who's the art editor of The New Yorker, and got to work with him. But he said, the goal of every artist is to make something that once seen cannot be unseen. And he worked in a very abstract sign system. And he was also influenced by Crumb. He began to have these heavy-legged women in some of his later 60s work to see what it would be like when, through his eyes. Um, but basically, I learned to hate Steinberg when I was in high school because I went to this trade high school. Should I be talking really fast now because we're about to end? No, we're not about to end. Oh, okay. But um, we're not about to end, but, but you... But talk fast. But talk okay. fast nevertheless. Yeah, yeah. What it is is, I was went to the High School of Art and Design, which was like a, uh, a trade school, like to learn refrigerator repair or auto repair or printing uh, for commercial art. And the guy who wrote the book called Careers in Commercial Art was the dean. He saw my work and he said, I'm going to tutor you privately. Okay, come to my office every day instead of that class. And he said, okay, start by copying your favorite artist. So I started copying picture after picture by Basil Wolverton, who had done that mad cover. After about four days, Mr. Beagle Eisen stopped and looked at what he was doing, grabbed it, crumpled it up, and said, Art, there is such a thing as vulgar. There's the left side. And, <laughs> and then he gave me a book by Steinberg where I had to draw every picture with a quill pen in one of these early books. So, I, so that, that, oh. that, that's your, your... I learned a lot from it, probably, yeah. but I didn't learn to love him until years later as a result. He will go through some of your ah, yes. New Yorker covers. This was the one that changed the New Yorker's DNA, my first cover for the magazine, in the wake of the Crown Heights riots between the West Indian, African-American, and Hasidic communities. This made more of a ruckus than anything till the Internet. Now everything makes a ruckus. But this was a shot heard around the world, even by people who never heard of Crown Heights for some reason. And the Jews were upset because uh, a Jew couldn't uh, even embrace his wife in public. And although I could have said, it's not public, it's a red background for Valentine's Day, and she's just Sephardic, leave it alone. Um, <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't go there, you know? I just said, okay, I'm a maker of iconic images, and so I'm behind the eight ball before I start. Meanwhile, I never understood why the black community was mad at me, except on the radio, one, uh, a pastor on a daytime talk show said, if that artist had any guts, he would have had a black man kissing a Jewish lady. And so they got me on the line, and I rebutted by saying, you may be a very good pastor, but you'd make a terrible art director. Nobody would understand what some lady with a handkerchief on her head uh, was doing with this black guy. And even worse, you'd be on here yelling about the black man being seen as a predator of white women. Uh, so the whole thing would have turned into a complete mess. And then I learned that it always turns into a complete mess. There's always unintended consequences. For one of those, the unintended consequence 
Uh, well, the unintended consequence for that picture really was you need to know a lot to understand these symbolic drawings. And my favorite letter that proves that that came to the New Yorker was a young woman saying she thought it was really sweet that on Abraham Lincoln's birthday there was a picture of him kissing a slave. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> This was another one called The Guns of September. This was uh, one of uh, our ex-pres uh, called Taking the Low Road. <laughs> this was the one I made with my wife after September 11th. Uh, uh, black on black that could only be seen when the light shifted uh, to show you the just fallen towers. Came out like about, I don't know. So powerful, such an economy of... Of means. Well, this really came about between us. We each, I know it was a collaboration because we each have different origin stories. So I know we really collaborated on this one. Uh, but the thing is, what was really nice for me was something that uh, one of the letters that came for this one said, he just, uh, Spie uh, Spiegelman and Mooley, uh, just, uh, gave purpose to all of those years of abstract expressionism and Ed Reinhardt. So I like Ed Reinhardt, but still, it was a nice letter. It was that phantom limb. Uh, this was a, a, the black and white drawing that was included in the uh, series I did called In the Shadow of No Towers. Uh, this one is a vision... I mean, Crumb really comes out there. Yeah, I think, think? We, partly because we both look at Hieronymus Bosch, and uh, um, on the right there's a Beckman figure falling from a tower uh, from one of his paintings. But uh, absolutely, Crumb was a big influence. You were mentioning Françoise Mouly and... Oh, yeah. So, and Françoise, I want to recognize you. So, Françoise is my most erstwhile collaborator. This is a magazine we did that was about the size of the real-life magazine, almost a tabloid. This was issue seven of Raw, the Tornogen graphic magazine. There's another one called the graphic magazine that lost its faith in nihilism. Another one that was called the graphic magazine of postponed suicides in honor of E.M. Sioran's quote. Uh, but this one was inspired by the fact that when you didn't sell a magazine on a newsstand, they'd rip off the logo and return it for credit. We made a magazine where every issue had something pretty much handmade in it. Uh, and we just couldn't let them get returned. It inspired this issue where we hand-ripped the upper right-hand corner. I did that. I used a photograph of Francoise with her eye turned brown in this collaged face, a cover of an earlier Raw uh, on the very left. And then in the upper right, there's the contents page that Francoise designed that turned the N for seven, because this was issue seven, into the W. And Francoise had the idea, <coughs> we can't just throw away color printing my father really loved Francois, yeah. <laughs> so she she saved uh, all of the corners. And what we did was, after giving these low-budget printers this difficult task of printed right, printed right, printed right, we invite, invited about 20 of our friends into the bindery and were ripping the corners off and then pasting each corner into another copy uh, on the contents page in a place that was designed for it. And so this was kind of like a science experiment. I thought of destroying things, Francois. Salute, Sai, and your matriarchy. Thought of trying to save the corner. And then we just allowed our friends to move wherever they wanted and work on one assembly line table or another till we did all, I don't remember how many we did of this issue, 7,500 or something, I think. And the, um, the contributors to Raw were just amazing. Yeah, but here what happened, just to yeah. finish that one sentence, is all of the women were in the 
taping the corners back in, and all the men except for Sukkot were (laughs) ripping corners on the other table. And Raw had quite a a roster. I I think it influenced a lot, as much as whatever people say about Mao's, which was a little uh, booklet within, uh, it introduced most people to a lot of the French cartoonists who I had my mind blown by when I first went to France and started seeing what European comics were like. It introduced the world to Charles Burns, uh, a lot of people to Gary Panter. Uh, it's one of the first things that Chris Ware ever had published. I know, and the, the line of Chris Ware, which I love, is when you, he says, when, when you don't understand a painting, you assume you're stupid. When you don't understand a comic strip, you assume the cartoonist is stupid. Absolutely. Fantastic. He's a great fountain of quotes, incidentally. Yeah, when great. talking about books, yeah. uh, I was pointing out how books let you concentrate because they're in kind of one-point perspective, so you focus, even though I only know perspective by rumor and training uh, still. And then he said, yeah, a, a book is kind of like a person. It's bigger on the inside than the outside, and it has a spine. Fantastic. Brilliant guy. I, I'm going to use that. Yeah. Ah, yes. You see, I wouldn't have... Oh, is this where we're starting? Okay. I wouldn't have seen the comics that created so much trouble in America, but I did have a father's guiding hand. The horror comics were a problem. Okay. Oh, this is not from... Okay, this is... Sorry, it's the second sequence also called A Father's Guiding Hand. Here, mine with Dash. Hey, Dash, look at what Papa has for you. A present. Yep, it's been in the family for years. My dad gave it to me when I was a little boy. It's old, huh? And now I'm giving it to you. What is it, a monster? It's magical. It's getting bigger. It makes you feel so worthless you don't believe you even have the right to breathe. Aye! And someday just think you'll be able to pass it on to your son. Thanks, Papa. I mean, I, I, found the, I find the sequence <laughs> extraordinary. And I'm sorry, Dash, you're in the room somewhere. No, but, but it's He's also, managed to survive it it's better also, than it's, I did. It's such an interesting rendition of, of the whole notion of the transmission of trauma. Mm-hmm. And um, the next sequence is among my most favorite. Mm. It's um, the, day, the days you spent in Connecticut with, with Maurice Sendak. Yeah, this grew out of wanting to go up and just interview him for The New Yorker, just as a text interview. We got along really well there, but uh, I came and I realized maybe I, would, I was underlining the most important lines in the interview as if they were going to be pull quotes. And then I realized if I just take the pull quotes and turn them into a strip of us talking, that would work. Uh, Tina was glad to have that. And I invited uh, Maurice to come to my studio, which he never... He doesn't go out much, didn't go out, out much, but he came and we spent a day of... of or a little over. He was left-handed, I was right-handed. We could work on the same panel at the same time. And uh, it worked beautifully as uh, a jam, basically, between the two of us. And it was just taken from the uh, recorded thing. The only place I got wrong was, I don't know what he actually said, but I had transcribed it as, uh, childhood is cannibals and psychotics vomiting in your mouth. And he cackled. Because uh, people say, oh, Mr. Sendak, I wish I were in touch with my childhood self, as if it were all quaint and succulent, like Peter Pan. Uh, but that quote, I evidently got it wrong, but he said, it's much better than what I said. Leave it. <laughs> I ask, I say, you are in touch, lady. You're mean to your kids. You treat your husband like shit, and you lie. You're selfish. That's your childhood self. 
In reality, childhood is deep and rich. It's vital, mysterious, and profound. I remember my own childhood vividly. I knew terrible things, but I knew I mustn't let adults know I knew. It would scare them. Ah, I, so I love that so yeah, much. Yeah, me too. And, I, and I love the fact also that you're trying in a way to make him perhaps, to put him in a, in a, in a, in a setting where he might be the child, the, the writer for children, and there might be a nostalgia, but he says no. Absolutely not. No. He said earlier in no. the same piece, yeah. he says children's books, adults' books, it's, it's just marketing. It's, they're either good or they're bad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and so uh, there's an ethical point of view, too. Absolutely. And he was you know, very serious about what he made. It was frustrating that he'd only be relegated to the nursery. Uh, I think by the end he was beginning to... I think to Neil Gaiman that. used that line That's what I was going to say. Yeah, like, because I remember when I interviewed Neil here, he used that very line. He put it in his yeah. uh, book, of the, of the something at the end of the lane. Yes, that's right. Very recently, and he had it as the... Uh, the, before the book started, the... Uh, you know, one of my very, very well, favorite um, Maurice Sendak stories is he would write back to every single one of the children who would write to him. I don't know if you know this story. No, you I probably didn't. do. Do you? No, but I feel guilty as I hear it. Okay. Um, well, you know, <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> but um, <laughs> at any rate, you can catch up. Listen to this. He said, once a little boy sent me a charming card with a little drawing on it. I loved it. I answer all my children's letters, sometimes very hastily. But this one, I lingered over. I sent him a card and I drew him a picture of the wild things on it. I wrote, Dear Jim, I loved your card. Then I got a letter back from his mother, and she said, Jim loved your card so much, he ate it. <laughs> that to me was, <laughs> that to me, see, that, I don't write no, no, that to me is one of the highest compliments <laughs> I've ever received. He didn't care it was an original Maurice Sendak, drawing or anything. He saw it, he loved it, he ate it. I can appreciate that part. I just wouldn't want the letter back from the mother. Because then you're <laughs> no, responsible I... for another correspondence. Ah, uh, yes, meeting with another great old man. Uh, so this is part of a thing I was doing about... Uh, uh, Charles Schultz, Peanuts. Uh, there's more to it. This is just one little four-row thing in a three-page piece that also started as a text essay appreciating uh, him. It resulted from him writing me a fan letter uh, that said he reads the New Yorker every week. He had seen some drawing I had made that he really liked. And he said, if you're ever out in Santa Rosa, uh, why don't you come visit me at number one Snoopy Place? Which made me think it was a hoax. Uh, when I looked into it and found out it was real, I figured I should visit him because I had loved his work when I was little. It was very avant-garde. But by the time I was in college, uh, he was shilling for MetLife, for Ford Cars, uh, and uh, happiness was a warm puppy, was in everybody's dorm room as a, especially Republican girls, a rather detumescent category for me. Uh, and I just began to not love it as much until I met the generation that included Chris Ware and Dan Klaus and many others saying, Charlie Brown got me through an alienated childhood. And that made me revisit him and certainly go visit him as soon as I could. So this do you was, want to read, do you want to yeah, read those? Just it's just fantastic. Uh, so 
what's your relation to this drawing of yours? Huh? To my Jewishness? Oh, this is probably better. Okay. Um, well, I'm not religious like you, uh, but I do identify with the alienated diaspora culture of Kafka and Freud. Uh, what Stalin uh, pejoratively called rootless cosmopolitanism. You know what I mean? No, not really, but I'm trying. Good grief. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so what have we got here? Oh, that's another one with dash. Yes, okay. Um, do you want me to say something? You sure. Uh, so Mao's got stopped in, in media, media res. Like I'd finished the first volume after about eight years. The whole book I thought would take me two. And at that point, uh, volume one, I convinced Pantheon to put it out as part one because otherwise it might be another eight years before the second one came out. And it was very hard to get back to work. It involved me going to see... Uh, well, first, I would just lie on my couch after I got my first dose of fame, which was difficult for me. Uh, so I'd just lie on this couch, staring at a stain on the couch for most of my waking hours, for weeks on end, until Francoise rescued me and said, you need another kind of couch, and sent me to a shrink who really helped me a lot. Uh, so when I finally got back, I got back in with this kind of meta-mouse section of working on mouse after the book had been very well received. Uh, so in this, when you see it in its entirety, I don't think anybody thinks of this, but at the bottom panel, obviously, there's this mountain of bodies. Um, but uh, if you look at it, you wouldn't notice this and shouldn't notice it if you're just reading the book, but this goes back to some of my experiments in comics where I wanted the whole page to be a graphic as well as what's in every panel. There's kind of a broken swastika that goes through the page, like that area of shadow goes down and down and down and part of it disappears and then goes back well, up. One, once you on point that out, mm -hmm. uh, as you do, I think it's really hard not to see it. Okay. But I, I had to do it just to keep myself going on something narrative that was going to be so long, was to think it all out as phrases. Each, each page had to be a structure of some kind, sometimes just bricks to tell uh, the stories in the present where it's me and my father just talking. But sometimes I had to find a means of making the page do something that would let the page exist as a, a unique structure of things where I didn't see more than I could hear from my father. I don't know if you want to read this out, maybe not, but... Whatever. Well, I'd have to go closer to that screen. Should I read it? I just didn't memorize my book. Um, although it acts as a memory for me. Because, well, I can do it if you want. Sure. Sorry. Time flies. Vladek died of congestive heart failure on August 18th, 1982. Francoise and I stayed with him in the Catskills uh, back in August 1979. Two, Vladek started working uh, as a tin man in Auschwitz in the spring of 1944. I started working on this page at the very end of February 1987. In May 1987, Francoise and I are expecting a baby. Uh, between May 16, 1944 and May 24, 1944, over 100,000 Hungarian Jews were gassed in Auschwitz. In September 1986, after eight years of work, uh, the first part of Mao's was published. It was a critical and commercial success. 
At least 15 foreign editions are coming out, and I've gotten four serious offers to turn my book into a TV special or movie, I Don't Wanna. In May 1968, my mother killed herself. She left no note. Lately, I've been feeling depressed. All right, Mr. Spiegelman, we're ready to shoot. Okay. Okay, there's another sequence. I never felt guilty about Risha. This is my phantom brother who died before I was born. But I did have nightmares about the SS men coming into my class and dragging all those Jewish kids away. Don't get me wrong, I wasn't obsessed with this stuff. It's just that sometimes um, I'd fantasize Zyklon B coming out of our shower instead of uh, water. I know this is insane, but I somehow wish I had been in Auschwitz with my parents so I could really know what they lived through. I guess it's some kind of guilt about having had an easier life than they did. Sigh. I feel, uh, I feel so inadequate trying to uh, reconstruct reality that was worse than my darkest dreams and trying to do it as a comic strip. I guess I bit off more than I can chew. Maybe I ought to forget the whole thing. One, one note here. I said comic strip, but I could have said all art if I'd thought of it. Uh, there's so much I'll never be able to understand or visualize. I mean, reality is too complex for comics. So much uh, has to be left out or, and are, are distorted. Just keep it honest, honey. See what I mean? In real life, you would never have let me talk this long without interrupting. Hmph, <laughs> light me a cigarette. <laughs> Let's take a listen to this now. Okay. As soon as she heard that they killed her uncle and they are going to send over all the, all the town who only is left, to Auschwitz-Birkenau, to the guest chamber, she carried always poison. And she said, in the last moment, I will not go to the guest chamber. My children will not go to the guest chamber. So she poisoned the children and herself. Her husband went with the transport to, to Birkenau, but on the way, he jumped out from the train, wanted to run away but they killed him when he jumped out. And this, you see, when mother found out about her son, about her son and her, and her sister and everybody's gone, she didn't want to live anymore. And she always said, why are you pulling me? Let me alone, I don't want to live. I told her, to die, it is easy, but you have to struggle for life. How long we can, we'll struggle, till the last moment. And you have to be with me. I need you, and we'll be together. And you will see that we'll survive. He's a good storyteller. And uh, he became my collaborator along with Hitler on this book. And... Uh, the book was important for me, to, and whenever I've had uh, museum shows, and now I made a book called Meta Mouse that has all of my many tapes where we tell me the story in different words over and over as I kept poking at it, uh, because um, I wanted you to hear his voice unmitigated by mine. And uh, the book Meta Mouse has a disc that has a lot of that in it, and it ends up becoming, uh, like the book itself, a way of keeping him alive, even though when he was alive, he was a much more 
difficult uh, father figure for me than good old Sai. Uh, but here, at the very end, the whole book rests on this tombstone with the uh, dates of my mother's death and my father's death based on a photo of their tombstone, and on the bottom, the dates that Maus was born and was finished. Uh, so although Maus was finished, of course, I've had a 5,000-pound mouse running after me ever since, and it's only fair. This was right after the war. Ah, and what I learned from my father, because he was not interested in me becoming a cartoonist. He wanted me to become a doctor, and when he saw that I had no aptitude for it, he said, so become a dentist. Because <laughs> uh, he said, you know, you can, uh, you can draw your cartoons at night, but nobody will come to a dentist at night. And although it was impeccable logic, uh, I had to follow my own course. And here, it was the thing I did learn from him. Do you want to go back and have me read it or, or not? I don't know. Okay. This is in a series called Packing. It's important to know to pack. Many times I have to run with only what I can carry. You have to use what little space you have to pack inside everything what you can. This was the best advice I've ever gotten as a cartoonist. to ask you a question. And so this morning he wrote to me and he said, one of the things I appreciate most about art is I never know what he's going to do. It seems so organic and unlikely. <laughs> what keeps him moving forward? Curiosity. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Read this ah, yes. series quickly, uh, coming to an end. I agree. But it's interesting also, I mean, I, I, I find it the, the medium of bringing Susan Sontag, so it's so fascinating that you should do it in that way. That really brings in... Well, it the brings two, out the yes. richness of the thought and the violations of the thought. But when I was in Texas getting traumatized... Yeah. Um, Did you show them this? Well, I was going to, and then the very, very sweet woman who was part of the small blue-colored creatures in the red planet um, that were buffering me from what was around me, said, you know, we'd advertise this so middle school kids could come. Uh, is there anything you could do and not show that? And I said, I'll try to figure it out. Uh, and then what I did was I took it back to the hotel room and I replaced those two panels that are out of keeping with the others with a photograph of a statue that, of Donald Trump that was in Union Square Park called The Emperor Has No Balls. <laughs> So, first one was seen from behind, and then the other one was seen from the front, but it went by so quickly nobody could find his dick. It's like the small hand. <laughs> we, it was uh, then, I think, that the uh, tech uh, support decided not to help me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we, we end with Sai. And we end with a series of his called Ghosts. The last series he did, actually. Pardon? It was the last series he did. 
started in 2008 and ended in 2015 or so. You, you say the primary medium is charcoal, which already 15,000 years ago produced the cave paintings of Lascaux and Altamira, long before art became part of the human vocabulary. Ghosts as well are not meant to be art objects. That was Sai talking. Yes, I am. And yeah, and what, what he, he gave me one of the ghosts when I first met him. And he said, but remember, you can't frame it or stretch it. It just has to be a shroud. Put it up with pushpins. I love these. And you know, after he hurt his hand, he yeah. kept doing these, actually. So it must have been even into 2016. But he, he did certain kind in those, but he couldn't stretch canvas or even cut it because the scissors were too big a problem. So he just painted on the back. It was a little bit like the Sorcerer's Apprentice. He couldn't stop these ghosts from appearing everywhere. You, you say, Sai showed me stacks of his ghosts, often with a spook on each side of the raw canvas, as if he couldn't stop, as if he couldn't stop them from showing up. But then in one of his later letters, he said, I found out they're not all so frightening. And all of a sudden, I'm getting these drunk ghosts uh, and, and uh, uh, colorful ghosts. And then he seemed to just relapse into the ghosts that were haunting him. I think they're extraordinary. Yeah, they are. The one that he gave me uh, was really an intense one. I had him hanging over my drawing table for a month or so. It was just too unnerving. I couldn't think about anything other than his ghost. Uh, this was before he died, of course. Oh, yeah, that's right. He died. Uh, is that what's coming up next? Mm. Or, yeah, you know. So what happens is we're working on this book, and I keep... He's getting really frustrated that he can't paint anymore. He's now in a much smaller place, uh, what he called his cave. I said, you mean it doesn't have much light? He says, yeah, but I just painted on all the walls. Uh, and then he's quite diminished over that last period. And he loved what we were doing, what I was making out of the book with uh, my editor from Abrams, Charlie Kochman. And finally, the first copy came back as a, a bindery proof to see whether this accordion fold thing was working properly. Uh, I took one of the three immediately and brought it down to Sai, and uh, he was really diminished at this point. He was just getting over uh, pneumonia. Uh, he um, had tried to go on a hunger strike to die, but he, his daughter talked him out of it. Uh, he, um, oh, he, he basically was clearly just staying alive out of curiosity. And when I brought this book down to him, he was so delighted. And he kept trying to look at both sides at once. And he said, this is a new genre. You know, this is something else. And it, he was just very thrilled with it. Since Charlie wasn't with me, I asked him to talk into my iPhone long enough to say what he thought about this thing. And um, it was you, kind of touching for me, really touching. But in, in a way, you, you channeled him also. You brought him back to life with this book. Well, in a way, that's what he seemed to think as well, you know, like, uh, oh, he, you know, he, when we were he, working he, on the text, I, yeah. I should have told you this earlier, but I can't help but do it now. Um, he's, we were talking almost every day during the last, not this past summer, but the summer before while I was working on the big essay. And he said, are you going to say what happened to my hand? I said, well, yeah, of course. He says, but, you know, I've been telling people it's, uh, it was an accident. I said, yeah, but Sai, this is your story. I've got to say it like it was. And then he's quiet for a second. He says, you're right, you're right, you're right. And then I responded saying, hey, man, it worked wonders for Van Gogh. <laughs>
let's let's in closing let's look at that very last moment. Yes. When the Charlie, this is really quite something. I didn't, I didn't expect it to be quite so calm. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.